0: Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme.
1: Many years ago in London, I acquired a coat I had yearned for. It was long, black, and waxed, with a little half shoulder cape, trail dusters, I think they were called. I sashayed around Soho delighted with myself, thinking I was cool, edgy, and slightly flamboyant. I now suspect I actually resembled a slightly inebriated Christian brother. But I kept the coat to remind me that though I have never been a fashion victim, I have sometimes been a sartorial fool. So when our farming friend and neighbour asked if I'd help him herding cattle for the day, I said yes, I had the very garment. The next morning I rehearsed a few useful phrases such as Easy there and Go on you good thing. Then I strode up to the cross in wellies, the coat and a jaunty black waxed cap to match. I also carried a stick for waving at cattle. At the barn, the farmer tactfully suppressed a grin and said he hoped I didn't mind getting my coat spattered with cow manure. My hesitation was only split second. Not at all, I replied cheerfully. I hadn't expected to be soiled. I just thought I'd be gently encouraging Daisy and Buttercup along the lane with a useful phrase and a click of the tongue. Later that day, I was smeared in bovine excrement and sweating niagorously. But I get ahead of myself. First we had to get the cows. We headed down the lane on the quad bike. I rode precarious pillion as the long flapping tails of my clearly impractical coat threatened to whip me under the wheels. Relieved to get off, I was positioned behind a large beech tree and told the simple plan. The cows would be rounded up and politely encouraged out of the field. Their inclination would lead them down the lane instead of up, where they were bound. When the gate was closed behind them, a whistle would be my signal to emerge, stop the herd and send them back up the lane to the barn. I was pretty clear on most of this, if slightly vague, about the stopping the herd bit. But before I could demur, away the quad bike roared and I was alone under a silent, pitiless sun. The beech tree cast a shadow like a gallows. Life seemed intensely sweet and far too short. My mind wandered morbidly. My cattle-stomped corpse, weeping mourners following my hearse through the darkened village, inconsolable family, distraught, guilty farmer. Then a crow cawed, the ground rumbled under the urgent heavy hooves, and the air was suddenly thick with roared obscenities and the revs of the quad bike. There was a loud whistle. Then a shrill one. Then a bellow of, Stop the effing cows! My doom was upon me. I stepped out, looked up the lane, and narrowly avoided fainting. A single cow trotting is quite a pleasing sight. It is a gratifying combination of bulk and elegance. However, a whole herd cantering straight at you is a different matter. I made a strange, involuntary whinnying sound. Then I took hold of myself and uttered commanding, clicking noises. Nothing. I coughed aggressively and tried a rehearsed phrase. On they came. There was nothing for it but to deploy the coat. I opened it wide, waved my arms frantically at the lead cow and went... The herd stopped in its tracks and stared timidly at me. I snorted with relief and waved my stick in light. Then, with a nonchalant air that belied my inner confusion, I herded them up the hill. The coat had not let me down. Instead of a tremulous pillock in an inappropriate outfit, the cattle had seen the apparition of a thundering Jesuit threatening hellfire. Or else they imagined a gargantuan crow and it really messed with their heads. Either way, it did the trick. In the barn, the cattle were led through a narrow passage where they were held still, long enough for the vet to test for TB, and for them to defecate copiously, mainly over me. My coat has now declined, sadly, from the pristine elegance of its London days. It hangs in the garage, crumpled, stained and smelling dubiously, but it has fulfilled its destiny with grace and honour.
2: Rollin', 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 rollin'. Roll high. Keep rollin', rollin', rollin'. Though the streams are swollen, keep them doggies rollin'.
3: No doubt about it, my passport picture was displeasing to my 20-year-old self. Taken when I was 16, the image preserved a moment in time when I had a DIY perm and owned dungarees, which, unhappily, I chose to wear the day the photograph was taken. I was next in the queue in Pulkova International Airport, St. Petersburg. The grey uniformed border guard had a severe matronly air not unlike the nuns of my school days. documenti," she said. I closed the page on the offending image and handed over my passport. Documenti. The first word I heard spoken by a real Russian in Russia after two years of studying the language. She did not care to smile, but I beamed. That St. Petersburg airport could not have been more drab and dreary, but for me it was the gateway to my dream. A dream paid for in countless pints served, tables wiped and ashtrays cleaned. The guard studied my six-month student visa and found it acceptable. Then, although the Soviet Union had ceased to exist five weeks earlier, she stamped the page with the letters CCCP, pronounced SSSR in Russian. I suppressed the urge to cheer. We had been warned about the cold. I had picked up a man's overcoat from a second-hand shop in Temple Bar and old lady-style plastic ankle boots from Connolly's with a warm lining. I looked like a girl who had borrowed her dad's coat and granny's shoes or, to some eyes, a strangely dressed boy. My short hair and old overcoat certainly confused the Russians who often mistook me for a citizen of one of the Baltic states. Anything but a Westerner. My stay in St. Petersburg was full of drama and wonder, perhaps as much to do with my age as the monumental changes taking place in the country. But even amid the strangeness, I developed a routine. To get to class in the morning, I took the metro to Admiraltyeskaya and walked across the wide Nieva River to University Embankment, picking up a fried cabbage pie from one of the elderly street vendors along the way. One day in particular stands out in my memory. It was still winter and the beauty and the cold seemed to go hand in hand in the city. The language faculty of St. Petersburg State University, across the river from the famous bronze horseman statue of Peter the Great, was in a crumbling old building that had once housed an obscure ministry in its tsarist administration. I was waiting in the entrance hall of the university building when, idly, I started reading the student notice board. One slip of paper advertised a Russian English dictionary for sale. To my amazement, someone had scribbled a phrase in Irish on the neatly written ad Boston Verla? Death to the English language? Ireland was 2,000 miles away. Who on earth? I looked around, half expecting someone to step out from behind the staircase and say, gotcha. I found a pen and wrote a message back. "K scréé The graffiti writer answered the next day. After a few messages back and forth on the notice board, we had a time and a place to meet. His name was Kirill and he brought along a friend and an archaic-looking tape recorder. Kirill was as pale as he was earnest. With his black coat and scraggly beard, he could easily have played a young Rasputin in a cheap TV series. The students explained they were dedicated to preserving endangered languages in the former Soviet Union and elsewhere and had started learning a handful of languages from books. They wanted to hear a native speaker pronounce Irish words. That I was the daughter of a native speaker was good enough for them. They led the way to an empty room on an upper floor. I had no misgivings. How could I not trust two shy boys who were passionate about endangered languages? The tape recorder whirred on the table while I read out the short texts they had provided, my blass eliciting frowns and raised eyebrows from the students. They had no idea of the vagaries of Irish pronunciation. A simple phrase like On Shan van Vocht, the poor old woman, is full of revelations if you are not aware that an S is not always an S and that the letter H has superpowers. Kirill and his sidekick were delighted. Could this be the beginning of a beautiful friendship, I wondered. But when I was done, the linguists ushered me out with smiles and nods, eager for me to leave so they could listen back to the tape. All they had wanted from me was my voice. In return, they gave me this memory without which I might not be able to summon the feeling of being 20 years old in a foreign city with the future stretching as wide and bright as the northern sky.
0: It is late autumn, the cusp of winter, a time of change and transition. And I am thinking about salmon, those quick silver rainbow-bodied fish that swim in sweet river water and in the wild salt ocean. Even now, the last stragglers of salmon are returning from their long sea voyage, making their way up the rivers of Waterford, the Blackwater, the Colligan the Mahan and the River Shore, those Paleolithic salmon following their ancient instinct to return home. John Moriarty used to say that all the rivers of Ireland have their source in an otherworld well. A hazel tree grows over it and hazelnuts fall into the well's pool and are eaten by the salmon of knowledge. If you could go now down to Waterford's Quay and dive into the river shore and swim upstream like a fish all the way to Carrick and on upstream to the waters of the Linorn up to the high slopes of Schlievnamon you would come at last to the acre of land which for the last fifteen years I called home. A well rises on that land hazel trees grow over it And at this time of year, the last hazelnuts fall into the well's pool. From the bridge in Waterford, you can see Schliebnamon on the far horizon. Often I sat up on that distant hill, thinking of John Moriarty's Otherworld well and puzzling over the Salmon of Knowledge, wondering what wisdom it offered. I gathered the hazelnuts when they fell in my pool and I thought about the nature of myth. In Canada, the First Nation people say, a long time ago they told us stories so we could learn how to become people. Once upon a time, all our stories came from nature and place. My friend, the Kilkenny poet, Paddy Doyle, tells me that in Irish, the word for place, tuath, is almost the same as the word for people, tuatha. Not so long ago, people and place entwined around each other like tendrils of honeysuckle. And the plants and creatures of a place inhabited the thoughts and stories of its people. We did not become fully human without borrowing from the tenacity of badger, the intelligence of owl, the cunning of fox. But what is the salmon's wisdom? Why in the 1800s was the salmon cast into copper and put up as a weather vane on the clock tower on Waterford's Quay? Why do verdigris copper salmon turn in the air above the Thossel in Carrick and above the West Gate in Clonmel? Across Asia, the Buddhists write prayers onto flags and hoist them into the wind. But here a myth has been put into the sky, a fish lifted among the birds of the air. When Yeats chaired the committee for the Irish Free State's first coinage, he made sure the salmon leapt on the back of the old Florin coin. And with decimalization, the salmon leapt on each tenpence piece. But would it be wisdom for us to eternally leap into our challenges as the salmon does. It is the Waterford writer and fisherman, Eamon Duffin, who tells me that when the salmon return from the ocean to the river, they must pause where the two waters meet. Too much sudden fresh water, or too much sudden salt in the spring when they leave these rivers, and the salmon would die. In their animal wisdom, they know when to become still. I love the thought of those fish paused there, steady in the dark currents, letting the world flow around them. And as we move deeper into winter, I feel the need to slow down like the salmon. What a sin it has become to slacken, to dawdle, to daydream. But like the sap sinking to the roots of trees, I want to sink into a quieter self. Here, in the last months of the year, I'd like to reflect and rest. In rest, each thing comes home to its own true nature. If John Moriarty was right, and all the rivers of Ireland have their source in an other world well, and if people and place are almost one and the (coughs) same, then surely the people of these rivers also have their source, in an otherworld well, a stillness that feels like home. As we come into winter, we may, like the salmon, need to voyage toward that otherworld place, to leap beyond our material concerns and become quiet enough for the sweet waters of silence to flow around us and within.
4: It's not that I know where every single piece of Delph in the press comes from, but whenever I take out a light blue ceramic cup, I can't help thinking how it ended up there. It came back with me from a trip to Romania 16 years ago, at the end of which I spent a few days in the capital, Bucharest. Apart from being overrun by stray dogs at that time, it's a city with many idiosyncrasies. A capital city, for instance, with no major river. Its architecture bears a strong French influence, although a major earthquake in 1977 destroyed the middle of town, rebuilt under the watchful eye of communist dictator Nicolae Ceausescu. It was only part of the legacy the apprentice Shoemaker left behind. Ceausescu's ambition to make Romania a world power involved a population drive that infamously filled the country's orphanages with abandoned babies. Oil exports kept foreign debt in check but domestic spending soon tilted the state into long-term bankruptcy. And looming over Bucharest, his pet project, the Presidential Palace. Entire neighbourhoods were flattened to make room for it. And even with construction teams working round the clock, it took 13 years to build. Every inch of construction was sourced locally, pink marble staircases, Antique furnishings and glittering chandeliers, so arguably it was a shop window for Romania's engineers, its architects, its skilled tradesmen. Ceausescu ran the country for 22 years, his wife Elena always by his side. They remained together to their grisly end, literally, on Christmas Day 1989. Three days previous, Ceausescu made his last public speech. In Timishwara, his dreaded Securitate, Secret Service and military had opened fire on demonstrators, which made the mood highly volatile in Bucharest. The Communist Party mobilised a huge rally to show the dictator still had popular support. Then, it all went wrong. From a balcony overlooking what is now Revolution Square, the dictator was heckled and jeered. Unused to being challenged, he stumbled off script, looking stunned. Bewildered, Elena urged him to regain composure, so Ceausescu declared a 10% rise in the minimum wage as well as top-ups to pensions and child support. But he couldn't buy off the revolution. A helicopter took him and Elena off the rooftop as they fled the next morning. Then the military turned against him and his fate was sealed. Wearing the same winter coat and hat, Ceaușescu was arrested 80 kilometres away in Targa Vista. Outraged to be found guilty of genocide and economic sabotage, he thumped the table with his fist, his wife beside him screaming for her life. Facing a death sentence, Elena insisted that they be shot together. Summary and brutal, they were led outside for the final act – All broadcast on TV to convince a sceptical public that the inconceivable actually happened. The bodies were brought back to Bucharest. On a sweltering hot day, I visited their final resting place in Gensea Cemetery. Ceausescu, I asked a kindly old gravedigger. Clearly, it wasn't the first time he'd been asked. Following execution, Elena and Nikolai were buried separately, she in row H25. He in row I-35, a modest, almost anonymous plot marked with the communist star and inscribed, A tear on your tomb from the Romanian people. An elderly lady paused for a silent prayer. She regarded me reproachfully, shaking her head as if to suggest the despot's fate was unjust. As she shuffled away, doors opened at a nearby chapel, a funeral in progress. An orthodox priest in cream-coloured robes emerged into the sunshine. Mourners took one last look at the deceased, 83-year-old Dimitriu Barbu, before the coffin was placed on an ancient cast-iron handcart and trundled slowly to an open grave by the boundary wall. One of the mourners stopped and gave me a candle wrapped in cloth. I said I didn't understand Romanian and didn't even know the deceased. It doesn't matter, said the woman, switching to perfect English. This is a Romanian custom. The candle represents the soul of my uncle. She rejoined the procession. I asked the old gravedigger, where should I put the candle? He pointed to the open plot, and I watched from a distance while the priest concluded the ceremony. The coffin was covered and lowered into the ground. Wine and polenta cake passed around, consumed by mourners in silence. The woman approached me. I told her I'd light the candle at the grave when the family was gone. Thank you, she said. I was introduced to another mourner who I'd noticed earlier carrying three yellow duty-free bags. She was the daughter of the deceased. Please, you will have food and drink to celebrate this day, she said, handing me one of the duty-free bags. She explained that food and drink was to symbolise body and blood. Somewhat mystified, I accepted and thanked her. The family would commemorate this day for the next seven years, after which they'd be satisfied that Dmitri Barbu was in heaven. His niece and daughter smiled for the first time. The crowd began to thin out, so I went to the grave and lit the candle. Then took a bus back to the city centre, wondering what was in the bag. Ceausescu had cleared another part of town to make way for Piața Uniri, a Parisian-style boulevard and park. It was now overgrown and full of weeds. With the sun beating down, I found a bench in the shade. I opened the bag to find it laid out with bread, chicken, salami, cheese, tomatoes, olives, fruit and cake, all lovingly wrapped, complete with cutlery and a blue ceramic cup. Communion for one, a feast for the soul. It occurred to me that Dimitriou Barbu had lived before, through and after Ceausescu's reign. The thought offered some circularity to the day's events. And 16 years later, I am reminded of this whenever the blue cup reappears at home, the day I found myself sitting in the park of a foreign city, the dreamscape of an ousted dictator, a generous lunch provided by kind strangers to mark the passing of a man I never met.
2: A gay ru. Tan gayre ek dridemestach, ne egayrinis feure, de logo a scurba consul. Tevamo den he tan tride lobe in a ribini liha, isker ek diro macheri condolic dauselo. Sawalya tamed de gulla voodan gay wurt Lashin voort las tan kistene galuga hirske. Mogrifurimon ibra, exaval torhi, potamur ern sorneke, lenta hola hoole glasse, a spoon o gregle a vaske, a sole deere he ere hides, a glinis an iron a sterilu, solenirtensi and glohog ista ishtachunter, an mask on ik schlaunua mach mar lava jarrag e glusch at the Hibernating. Winter is coming in, the days are getting colder, leaves being swept away. Outside the quay the tide is looped in grey ribbons, fishermen heading out to dance with them. At home we are getting ready to hibernate. With the cold outside and the heat inside, the kitchen is steaming up easily. My sister working, preserving fruit, a big pot on the cooker full of green apples, her spoon at the ready to mix it, her eyes on the recipe, glass pots in the oven being sterilised before she pours the apple jelly into them. The mix slipping out like red lava moving after the eruption.
5: been preparing a volume of the late Leland Bardwell's complete poetry. It's an odyssey into dust, scraps of memory, broken items and burnished gems. The process of reading and indeed shuffling a large number of poems is weird enough at best, but imagine the situation when the poet is your mother. When each of Leland's published volumes of poetry came out, I would have talked to her about certain poems, picked out favourites for praise and made quite plain any complaints. Now I reread them and I can't take my observations or criticisms back to the author. The days of flippant and unhelpful banter are certainly closed. I feel like I'm turning my mother into a monument, which in a way I am. This is her centenary year and I am duty bound. I wasn't raised by her to be bound by duty, to put it mildly, so it's just as well that the job is so rewarding. This job consists of digitising everything, making the format consistent and, with the help of others, selecting the 70 or so of her loose poems, as I call them. Poems that got into broadsheets, periodicals and magazines and also a body of unpublished poems, apparently an intended sixth collection that tapers off as she wrote into old age. Leland would keep an almost perfect poem for decades if that's what it took to settle the last line, or any line. Discovering a horde of poems new to me and the world was greatly exciting, but so I find is rereading the ones I thought I knew. Leland Bartle was no novice writer when, in 1970, at 48, she published her first collection. The title poem, The Mad Cyclist, combines the humour and grit of the younger woman confident of her self-worth in a world where a narrow class of ridiculous men held power. It opens with these lines. The wind blew west from the sun on the force of the oncoming peddler at 400 revs per m. Exceeding the navicular limit, she steered through the middle of buses and hot summer skins, of the addle of stammering sex, and the men with wallets that split at the seams and are worn like life-preservers. I remember being balanced with my brothers on that very bicycle, the black single-speed type that she called a sit-up-and-beg. She'd collect us from the bus stop at the top of Harkett Street and wheel us home to Leeson Street, carrier, crossbar and handlebars all becoming seats. And my memory of getting up at 5.30am to hang around film sets as a child extra brightens my reading of the poem Cinema 70, a long, picaresque account of chaos on a film set shooting in the Wicklow Hills. But my latest reading of my mother's poems is by no means all about such memories. What strikes me most is how fresh the social themes are. Leland refused to take on the roles society expected of her and struck out for independence as a woman, often impoverished, living in rough surroundings, in war-on-want clothes, never conforming in the slightest to the norms of the 20th century. She was well-placed to comment on power inequalities, as in the poem, we don't serve travelling people. The barman attacks the counter, his dry cloth bolting in fury, along the plastic beam. His eyes, like electric studs, fasten onto me. I feel the familiar pain. We don't serve travelling people, or prostitutes. No, I am not popular in pubs. Nine out of ten times I hear that icy madam cast up on the shore of my uncomplaining retreat. Not here, not there. From Liffey Street to Donnybrook and back, Only in Grogan's or the sword can I rest the prostitution of my weary but travelling mind. Many titles such as A Mother Mourns Her Heroine Addicted Daughter, Bag Lady and I'm Trying to Tell You Mr Justice Lynch illustrate how important it was to her to bear witness to her times. These poems pierce you when you read them as if they were written yesterday. You don't need to have known her to appreciate the poems. They're not private musings. They're expressions paired back to the essential based on the actual striving for the universal. What comes across to me better on each reading is the tension of the taut line, the respectful distance from the anecdotal and the biting humour. They age well, I think. From her store cupboard of poems for a final collection that never made it, There's this wonderful meditation on old age. Pain by Leland Bardwell The pain in my bones is as hollow as an old shoe. When I wake each day, I imagine death is having me on, as though to tantalise me and share the joke with all the others out there. Yes, a tantalising forerunner of something much, much worse, as if to say... You think this is bad? Just try and walk. Then you'll have something to complain about. So, is there a name for this pain, I ask, adding, don't get into a tantrum. But death can't be bothered to answer. Uses a monstrous laugh to wipe the skin off my face. I have nothing to say except, please,
6: On this morning's mix of both new and recent archive script, we heard Stockman for a Day by Philip Judge. Northern Sky was by Clara Day. You also had The Salmon of This Place by Grace Wells, which was recorded as Sunday Miscellany Live at the Theatre Royal in Waterford a few years ago. Frank Schallgaas brought us The Blue Cup, a gyru. Hibernating was a poem by Catherine Foley. And collecting the poetry of Leland Bardwell was by John McLaughlin. Music this morning in there t- you had Rawhide sung by Frankie Lane a Shostakovich duet a played by Amir Bezenghaliev on violin with John Lennon on piano. The Salmon's Tale by Brie Dean also featured Colm Aconómara on fiddle. Previgeti Siva Rugeti by Bransti was sung by the Romanian National Choir and just later Fivorstock by Alan Corcoran. Also, just to let you know about an event you may be interested in, A Single Rose, the celebration of Leyland Bardwell and poetry, prose, art, music and film, will take place at The Model, which is in Sligo next weekend, and tickets are available at themodel.ie. And Grace Wells' most recent poetry collection, it's called The Church of the Love of the World, published by Daedalus Press. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon, and the producer is Sarah Binchy.
0: You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany Podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.